0: Morning, everybody. Yes, we're good. We're on. We're working. That's great. If I could uh, bring your attention um, just in for a moment, and we're going we're gonna to begin um, this part of our gathering this morning. Uh, I'm Ryan. If you're a visitor today, you're very welcome. Uh, I'm part of the team here at Redeemer, and we are in week four of this series uh, in Revelation, which is the seven letters to the seven churches. In Revelation. In week one, which I opened up the series, we, we looked at this picture of Jesus as the one who moves among the, the seven lampstands of his seven churches, the Jesus who is present with his churches, the Jesus who holds the seven stars of the seven angels of these churches in his hand. He's a Jesus who is intimately acquainted with each of these churches. He cares for their well-being. He sees what they're going through, and he has a word for each of these churches, which he He brings through uh, this character of John, John the seer, um, this prophet, likely prophet uh, in western Turkey who had been exiled on this island of Patmos. So today we're looking at this uh, church in Thyatira. Um, This is Revelation 2, 18 to 29. The words will be on the screen, but you can turn it up in your Bibles or on your phones if you wish as well. Under the The angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants the practice to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers, the one who conquers, I've lost my place, and who keeps my works until the end, To him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Wow. This time, a couple of weeks ago, um, Jude and the kids and I, we were on, Holiday, and as part of our holiday we finished up in the, the beautiful streets and canals of Venice, um, which is an incredible place, a beautiful city. Um, it's like a wonder of the modern world. Um, if you're, you have your eyes open when you're walking around Venice, it's probably true to say that this is a city that is kind of long past its prime. About five to 700 years ago, apparently Venice was like the trading capital of the world that held this place along this trade route and it kind of controlled the trade of the world certainly in that part of the world but today it's long past its prime it's almost like a museum in itself and there's only like a couple of these famous trades that seem to remain that everybody knows about one of them is carnival mask making you'll see a little picture of me as the plague doctor hopefully if mark gets it up Oh, it's not a great photo. My alter ego, the plague doctor there. Uh, and the other one is this beautiful glass work that they do, which is known as Murano glass. A little bit like that, like Venice today with its notable trades, this city of Thyatira that we're looking at today um, was known for its trades. Um, it was a city among the seven churches that wasn't as well known as the other six Um, cities that we're looking at in these letters to Revelation, but it was famous for its trades and alongside those those trades were these trade guilds. Um, These trade guilds um, were most prevalent in this city and the whole of of Asia. There were wool wool workers, linen workers, uh, there were makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, uh, bakers, slave dealers, and best of all known in Thyatira was its bronze smiths. These are kind of everything you might expect from a trading city of its day. And this opening letter to this uh, place, Thyatira, this church in Thyatira, Jesus is described as the one who has eyes of fire and feet of burnished bronze, which probably spoke uh, a familiar image to this church uh, with its many forges and this bronze work that took place in this city. Um, these local industries, these trade guilds that were formed around them, came to be a little bit of a problem to these early churches that Jesus was writing to. Um, the church that Dave was looking at last week encountered the same problem. They had this kind of quasi, these quasi religious rites and feasts that formed a part of these guilds as a way of celebrating the industry itself and invoking the God's blessing upon the trades themselves. Sounds a little bit foreign to us, really, but then if you take just a moment to consider um, the landscape in Northern Ireland, and if you go into any village or town, you'll see a number of lodges um, that are scattered across this land that kind of promise a hand up if you participate in them. So it's maybe not that far away if you consider it that way. There's no easy way to say it, though. Jesus says unequivocally in this letter, that for his followers, participation in these feasts and rites of these trade guilds simply isn't an option. We've talked about in this series, haven't we, about this marrying of the state civic religion um, and the powerful state uh, as being this theme in Revelation and this threat to all these churches that they had to navigate through as they tried to remain faithful to Jesus. Um, And there's a coin I just wanna show quickly on the screen that uh, is from the time and from this particular place in Thyatira. And it shows the the local deity, Apollo and uh, Caesar, shaking hands actually, which kind of captures exactly this thing that we have been talking about over these weeks. Um, Both of these characters, this Apollo and and Caesar, they both took the title son of God. Um, So again, it's no surprise that Jesus calls himself the true Son of God, in this letter, as he introduces himself to this church, everything in these letters is a direct confrontation with the civic religion and the state uh, which these churches found themselves enmeshed within in these cities. Um, I love how Steph, a couple of weeks ago, framed this whole thing up. She she framed up this imagery of Jesus, um, saying that. Jesus was really speaking intimately to these churches, to these original recipients of these letters. Each of these letters was deeply personal. It was intimate. It told the recipients that Jesus knows them fully, that he sees them, he sees what they're enduring, how they're walking in his ways, and also how they're facing persecution or challenges or have been, in this case, drawn into compromise. His love for And his protection of these early churches um, is evident in each of these letters. And his eyes of fire in this letter see them and know them completely and what they were facing. And his feet of bronze in this letter that tells of the coming judgment where he ultimately will overcome his enemies, death itself, the grave and Satan and those who are a part of his cause. He will crush them under his feet. Like, like most of these letters to these churches, except for Laodicea, as we'll see in later weeks, this community of Thyatira is initially commended by Jesus. He praises them for their works. He praises them for their love and for their patient endurance in the face of the persecution they were facing and for their, that their current works exceeded the works that they did in the first, in the first place. This church was doing well, and all of those things. And it's a really good thing for communities of believers to celebrate the good that goes on in them. You know, a community like this one in Redeemer Central, where there is a love for Jesus that is evident, where there is justice for the poor that is practiced. These are good things to celebrate and encourage one another with and spur each other on in. But here's the thing that we can learn from this letter, I think, that activity for Jesus is not the thing that should come at the expense of obedience to the way of the Jesus kind of life that he is calling us into. Jesus laments that this, um, this church, the this Thyatine church has tolerated this false teaching and the practices that followed it represented in this letter by this character of Jezebel assuming these early believers in this church were were familiar with their Jewish scriptures, the very mention of this name Jezebel was designed to summon up this image of wickedness. I don't know if there's any uh, pregnant folk in this room, but here's a pro tip for any aspiring uh, parents here. Like Jezebel isn't one of those names that's gonna make the cut on the baby, baby name list, is it? You know, it's the equivalent today of maybe naming your child Adolf or something like that you know it's right up there on the baby list name with Nimrod and Judas can you imagine naming your child Jezebel so the mention of this name to this church is designed to speak of wickedness to the hearers and is reflective of the gravity of the sin that some of them had actually fallen into So who is this Jezebel character and why does she pose such a threat to this community? She was likely a real person with real followers in this church, as the text mentioned, but her name probably wasn't Jezebel. Rather, it was like a nickname that Jesus was giving to this person to evoke this powerful image of this Old Testament character of Jezebel that we'll look at very briefly now. Um, That Jezebel the 9th century BC, Jezebel. Her story is told in the book of 1st and 2nd Kings. She was the daughter of this Phoenician king who married King Ahab uh, of northern Israel. You may have heard of Ahab, and he was a very poor king. They were a wicked couple, and they led the people of God to participate in the pagan worship of Baal and Asherah in the days of their reign. Jezebel was the one who Elijah, the prophet, he fled from her after he had dispatched of the 450 prophets of Baal, if you remember the showdown story at Mount Carmel. This Jezebel must have been a pretty fearsome lady, right enough. Just like the Jezebel in this letter to the church in Tharatara, she was destined to meet a horrific end, if you've read the story. She was pursued, this 9th century BC Jezebel, she was pursued by this warrior called Jehu and in an ending fit for any Hollywood movie she puts on her makeup one last time and she's thrown from her palace by a couple of eunuchs to be eaten by dogs. Pure drama. It's amazing stuff but this Jezebel in this dire tyrant church there has actually been much silliness written about this Jezebel and about the issues facing the church through this character. Some commentators have read their own bias about women being in leadership in the church into this passage, would you believe? Just to clear that up, that is emphatically not what this passage is talking about. Any interpretation about women in leadership in church has been read into into this passage and it should be thrown out. We're a church here that celebrates and encourages women to lead with equal standing to men. I wanna encourage you men in the room to cheer our women leaders on and to pray for them and bless them as they lead. And for you, you ladies in the room, I want to encourage you to cheer on and encourage and bless our men leaders in this place. Celebrate them, encourage them, pray for them. We believe here that with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that God has raised up both gifted men and women to all positions of leadership within the church. Amen. With that said, Jesus tells us that this false prophetess who's symbolically given the name of Jezebel, she has infiltrated this church and she's leading some to eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. And almost certainly, as we have said, this is all part of the worship of the gods in the town attached to these local trade guilds because that was the most prevalent expression of worship in those days. The warning to this church, to this person and her followers is the most severe of the seven churches. And this obviously indicates the seriousness of the situation as Jesus sees it. These multiple sins that these, this person and her followers have been involved in a combination of sexual immorality and spiritual unfaithfulness is the issue here. I didn't really relish getting into this this week as I prepared to bring this talk. It's one of the most difficult passages there, the sternest words that Jesus has to say in Scripture, but we're having a go at it. We're not letting it just sit there and say nothing. If there was a word to describe what this church had fallen into, perhaps accommodation would be the word that sums up the feeling of this church. Accommodation, to avoid economic and social disempowerment. We talked in previous weeks about each of these churches having a particular unholy spirit that they were to repent of that Jesus was calling them out on, and this is the particular unholy spirit that this particular church in Thyatara were suffering with. Accommodation. Very similar as I said, when Dave looked at the church in Pergamum last week. They were found to be compromised and the challenges that they were facing to the allegiance to empire and the pleasures that were offered by participating in the local temples of the city. It's likely that these members of the church here that were involved with Jezebel had decided to avail of the benefits of participating in these local trade guilds, probably involving rights to other gods and probably some form of ritualized um, sex. Um, Anti Wright, he notes that Um, If you wanted to avail of the services of a prostitute in those days, that you wouldn't have to go further than one of the local temples, which is kind of crazy to think about in today's world. The pressure to conform for this church um, was perhaps that they should take the easy route to social acceptance through participating in this way. This kind of spiritual adultery that this church and this moral compromise that they had entered into Results in Jesus having these very, very stern words for Jezebel and her followers. These warning, warnings are—they are like the most explicit and lengthy of all the seven letters. As I said, Jesus says that she has refused to repent. She has been given opportunity to repent, and so judgment is actually on the way. It's on the way to this person, Jezebel, and her followers. The judgment that Jezebel in this passage—it echoes. What happens later on in the Book of Revelation, chapters sixteen and seventeen, where this harlot Babylon is judged and her downfall is celebrated in heaven? This harlot Babylon is like the inverse of the New Jerusalem, spotless bride of Christ, His Church. This harlot Babylon is the inverse of that. Um, but what relevance does any of this have for us today? You know, what, it, what does it mean for us to consider this letter? To, to so this diatarian church and this person of Jezebel today. I think it's true to say maybe that for even for us where persecution generally is not present for us in the church in the West and Belfast in the 21st century, um, but there is still a temptation for us to compromise. We can compromise, I think. We can compromise theologically. We can compromise financially we can compromise sexually we can compromise to gain influence or power i think for this church in Thyatira, the way of jezebel was it was the easy way it was the way to get ahead in life and so we can think about that for our own situation here today i wonder if we're honest with ourselves if we examined our own hearts would we find ourselves guilty of of compromise have we have laid aside the call of Jesus on our lives as a call to obedience to his ways in favor of what we can get out of life by maybe worshiping at other altars, maybe altars of self, altars of money, of power, of influence, of ambition, of politics or ideology, of family, of sex, of stuff. Anything really that displaces the rightful place of Christ at the very center of our lives as the singular sun around which our whole lives should orbit. Because that's what, that's what idolatry is at its heart. Anything that replaces Jesus' rightful place at the center of our lives. I want to do a slight gear change now and kind of jump back into my little story about Venice from earlier. Um, and two Sundays ago, as we were finishing up our time there, um, the kids couldn't be bothered going back in in the evening. So I got a few hours to go into the city by myself. And there's this thing that happens in Venice every year called the Biennale. Um, one year it's a big art exhibition. The next year it's a big architecture exhibition. Uh, it's an international art or, art or architecture exhibition. And it's a huge thing. It's got this these big gardens down at the end of the, of the island. Um, and this year the title for the art exhibition as it was this year was really grabbed my attention. Uh, the title was, May You Live in Interesting Times. I find this in, this wording really interesting. There should be a poster for it up there. Um, I thought it could be taken kind of positively or negatively. It could be a blessing or it could be a curse, depending on how you read it. When you think about it today, the, the times that we live in sure are interesting when we look at global events, they're interesting. When we look at local events, they're really interesting. Close to home, we might think about Boris. We might think about Brexit. We might think about borders or certain bills that have been passed in the commons recently. We might think about 900 odd days since we had a devolved government in Northern Ireland. So I set off in anticipation, trying to get down to this, the gardens where this biennale was held, And uh, I got there and it was closed. It was a Sunday, it was late, it was closed. Bummer, but I wasn't really that discouraged because I got to explore a couple of little side exhibitions that were happening at the same time. And then as I was wandering through the city, um, I came across a particular image that stopped me in my tracks and arrested me. Um, On the side of a crumbling building, it should come up here now, um, there was this image of a young migrant girl with a lit torch as a piece of street art on the side of this old building and it was a, it was a Banksy work actually the Banksy had infiltrated the B&L this year and Banksy was making a statement about what was going on i think he was he was reminding us what was really going on you know may you live in interesting times it kind of came to me like a, like a slap in the face amongst all the culture and the wealth and the beauty of this city of Venice, this little image of a migrant girl with her hand held aloft. And um, I felt like these words of Jesus are a little bit like a, a slap in the face to us. They're a call for us to kind of just wake up and take note at what is actually might be going on, the real thing that might be going on in the background, amongst all the pleasure-seeking and the wealth and prosperity and the fun and the culture of our lives we're presented day in and day out with this challenge of compromising our faith, I think. We can hear these words to this church in Thyatira um, of Jesus as a, as a wake-up call, perhaps, as a gentle slap in the face to us, just to waken up and have our eyes open to what may actually be going on. I just want to ask ourselves this morning, have we compromised? Have, have we forgotten about what's really going on? The stuff that's maybe just out of sight that is, has uh, escaped our attention. You know, those waters of the Mediterranean that Venice um, sits in, that it shares with the, the Mediterranean Sea. Those are the, the waters where hundreds of migrants lost their lives as they tried to make the journey to a better life. But what are, what are we supposed to make of these words of Jesus? These crazy words of Jesus, it seems, to, to the, this Jezebel and her followers. We've been talking about um, this Jesus who overcomes through self-sacrificing love Haven't we in days gone past in this series? And yet here we have what he says in this letter. He says, Behold, I will throw her onto his sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. One translation actually puts it, I will kill them with death. That'll do it, Jesus. You're going to kill someone, you may as well just kill them with death. Pretty stern words. There, there is an argument to be made about these violent portraits in Revelation that we see that they're not literal acts, but they are symbolic of an actual real truth. Just like Jezebel is a nickname for this person who had infiltrated this this church and her followers, are, they're not actually her children. We don't imagine they're not actually literal children of Jezebel, so there is a truth being spoken about here in Jesus' strong language this church. I think we can probably also say about the wrath of God, that God's judgment on sin, it actually comes as sin's own inbuilt reward. You know, within, within sinful behavior is the reaping of its own natural consequences. God's wrath is probably better understood that way, as sin's inbuilt consequences. God didn't create sin, right? So sin is like a parasitic thing to God's good creation. God's judgment in Scripture is spoken of in various places as coming from God, but as being acted out through other agents. God is not the agent carrying out the consequences of sin other agents are. So we can say that as a little bit of an inroads to trying to understand what's going on here. We can also say that throughout this book of Revelation, that sin itself is mirrored by the, pun- by the punishment for the sin. The sin that you do will come back to bite you. Jesus hints at this, that this bed of sexual immorality that Jezebel, this prophetess, had made for this church, the lion, that it will become a bed of sickness for her. So for God to bring about a judgment, he surrenders people over to the consequences of our sin. And I think that's true for what's happening here, perhaps, that these, these are only very basic ways of trying to grapple with what's going on in this letter. And whatever the truth of this statement of Jesus, it was designed to shock and to sober the original recipients into taking a look at whether they were compromising and if they were engaging in the works of this Jezebel and a call for them to repent. And it should do the same for us where we feel the spirit may be prodding us to examine ourselves and see where we may be compromising in our own lives. For Jesus, the situation that this church was in was a total mess. Part of the problem, Jesus says, is that this church was tolerating this woman, Jezebel. Their sin was, in part anyway, about seeing what was going on and not having the courage do anything about it. So I think it's true for those of us in this community who are entrusted with overseeing communities of believers like this one, that we should be watchful actually for those who would seek to introduce teachings and practices to the church that are maybe destructive. We as a senior leadership team, we take it seriously as we talk about guarding the well that is at the center of this community. That well is the revelation of Jesus Christ, It is the revelation of his gospel, It is the revelation of his kingdom. He is the life-giving center and source of this community. And we leaders in this community, we're like under shepherds, under the great chief shepherd, and we guard the well from which the flock drinks, and we also guard the flock against any wolves that would seek to come in. At the same time, we practice the welcome and hospitality of Jesus where everybody is invited to participate in his table because it is his table, not our table. Jesus, after all, is the one whose own self-description in this letter is as the one whose eyes are a flame of fire, who searches the hearts and minds of his people and will reward them according to their works. I think in these days where there isn't really very much asked for us as we practice the way of Jesus that we can easily forget this. I love this image of Jesus actually. It kind of simultaneously causes me to find great comfort in the Jesus who knows me completely. But it also causes me to kind of halt and ponder in reverent awe and a holy fear. The Jesus who's penetrating gaze of fire, searches minds and hearts and knows everything about me. He knows every feeling, every memory, every treasure that I hold in my heart, every thought I have, every breath that I take. And yet he loves me completely. He loves us all completely. I find huge comfort and reassurance in the God who knows my deepest, darkest sin and secrets and my failures and he is the one who knows me and loves me completely. We really couldn't be more loved despite our feelings. And that is all of grace, Redeemer. We experience all, it all as grace. The promise in this letter to those who remain faithful, to those who overcome and keep the works of Jesus until the end, is that they will share in the authority of Jesus This word for overcome in the original Greek is nikeo. And it's likely a play on words with the Nicolaitans who we've heard about over a couple of weeks who were also um, deemed as being in opposition to these churches and introducing heretical kind of teachings into them. So this nikeo, overcoming, is in contrast to these Nicolaitans who are introducing this teaching. The works of Jesus that he had in mind that his followers are to keep spans the whole course of Christian obedience, including faithfulness even to death, which would have meant something to those people in those early communities. Jesus kind of people overcome by a faithful living, which includes a willingness to forgo all else for allegiance to him, but also living in a way that refuses to compromise in the ways that we've spoken about already this morning. As Eugene Peterson puts it, the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. I don't think we really understand even a fraction of what Jesus is talking about here, that those who overcome will share in his authority and rule. It probably doesn't really mean very much to us um, in today's world. But imagine that you were poor. Imagine you were one of the dispossessed. Imagine you were persecuted. Imagine you were an immigrant child at a border held in a camp, perhaps separated from your parents. Imagine that you were in prison for your faith, maybe. Imagine you were in a state that persecuted you for following Jesus. I see the Crichtons sitting over here who know all about that in the place that they have been over the past couple of years. Perhaps this promise would mean something to you It sounds a little bit like blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth i want to invite the band up as we finish this morning uh, and we're going to sing um can i invite you to stand and we'll finish up here and we have a little bit more to say See, Jesus brings a second promise to this church. He says, I will give him, I will give them, those who overcome the morning star. This is a beautiful promise to this church. Jesus, later on in the book of Revelation, he reveals himself as the morning star. He says, I, Jesus, I am the root and descendant of Jesus, the bright morning star. The promise here is that Jesus will give those who overcome, he will give them himself. There truly is no greater reward than Christ himself, but it's more than that. You see, the morning star, if you know anything about it, this was the name given to the planet Venus as it shines brightly in the sky just before dawn. Venus is the light before the dawn. See, Jesus' kingdom now inaugurated as it was through Jesus' death and his rising is the light before the dawn of the new world that is coming that this book of Revelation talks about. We as his church, as his people, we get to share in this calling as being the light before the dawn. Redeemer, you are called to be the light before the dawn. In the midst of these interesting times, as we've talked about, that we live in, we have a call on us to be a beacon of light in the darkness, reflecting the light of Jesus and sharing in this calling to be the light, the morning star. So I wanna urge you, Redeemer, this morning, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let the fiery eyes of the one who searches minds and hearts search your heart this morning, You cannot hide from his gaze. You cannot have any pretense before him. The motives of your heart are laid bare before him. Let that fill you with a reverent awe and a holy fear this morning. Let it be also the most beautiful comfort that you will ever know. Experience being known by him completely this morning all your fears and failures, all your triumphs and joys, and yet know that you are loved completely. His gaze is upon us, Redeemer, whether we like it or not. He searches our minds and our hearts, and he is looking for those who will be uncompromising in the face of the challenges that we face in these interesting times that we live. Will you give your yes again to him, Redeemer? He's given us an altar here. He's given us a table. He's given us a feast to participate in that trumps anything that the world has to offer. This meal that we get to share in this bread and wine is a meal of resistance to those other tables that ask us to compromise in these days. Come and share in the table of Jesus this morning. And give him your 100% allegiance. Because that's what he asks for. Nothing else will do. And that's because he is worthy. If you never have participated in this table, come and share for the first time this morning. If you don't know Jesus this morning, come and share in this table for the first time this morning. And come to know him. Because the life is in the blood, the shed blood of Jesus this morning. Come and share in his body and his blood and experience the life that is in Christ. Let's sing as we finish and come and take bread and wine.